chapter 18. Please pray with me. Lord, as you called down fire from heaven and invoked cries from the crowd, would you also, Spirit, kindle fires in our hearts today to burn with love and devotion for you? Would you do this by your word? We pray this simply in faith. In the name of Jesus. Amen. As this is a story, we will be looking at our passage starting in verse 17 as we go through in the retelling of it. To begin, I want you to picture this, that you are standing high above a mountaintop ridge, a ridge that is long and broad, and as you look over the ridge, you can see below, over a thousand feet below, the different landscapes to the north and the south and to the east. You will see that the valleys and the sweeping plains, which once were lush and green, are now parched and brown and yellow in their hues. To the west, you can see the Mediterranean stretching as far as the eye can see. The ridge itself holds crowds teeming with anticipation. Then separate from the crowds, you see two groups. These groups are clustered around two structures, and they can't be any more different. The one is a crowd on its own, a little crowd, 450 prophets of Baal near an altar. The other one isn't a group at all. It's just one solitary figure, the prophet Elijah, standing by an altar that is unused and broken down. And Elijah speaks not to the prophets, but to the crowd that's gathered around, brought there, summoned there to be witnesses between the two. And he challenges them, how long will you go wavering between two opinions? If Yahweh, the Lord, is God, then follow him. But if Baal, follow him. They are silent. So Elijah proposes a a contest, literally a trial by fire, and they agree this is a fair test. And so begins one of the highest, biggest conflicts in the book of Scripture. It really is one of the high points of the Bible. You can't read through the Bible and miss this story. It jumps out at you. One man of God stares down 450 opponents and comes out unscathed. And yet Elijah is not the hero of the story, and his opponents are not the target. Yahweh, the true God, the covenant God, he is the hero. And his target, his objective, are the hearts of his people Israel. And we'll see God brings on this confrontation because he in his mercy was not willing to allow his people to wander off away from him. And what we're going to do today is retell the story, relive it, so to speak, and then ask, what is God saying to us today? So let us jump into this narrative, this history that God has given to us. 
This confrontation started three years prior when Ahab had forsaken God to follow Baal, who was thought to bring the rain. And Elijah appears out of nowhere, sent by God's authority, and proclaims the consequence of forsaking God to find water, life, and other someone else. And he says in 1 Kings chapter 17, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years, except by my word. And with these ominous words, Elijah goes into hiding. And King Ahab, as much as he would like, as much as he tries, cannot find him. And so the next three years go from bad to worse to terrible as the drought intensifies. And chapter 18, verse 1 begins our story where after many days, the word of the Lord came to Elijah in the third year saying, Go, show yourself to Ahab and I will send rain upon the earth. And so eventually... Elijah finds Ahab, which brings us to verse 17 today. When Ahab saw Elijah, Ahab said to him, Is it you, you troubler of Israel? And he answered, I have not troubled Israel, but you have and your father's house, because you have abandoned the commandments of the Lord and followed the Baals. Now therefore send and gather all Israel to me at Mount Carmel and the 450 prophets of Baal, and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. So Ahab sent to all the people of Israel and gathered the prophets together at Mount Carmel. Well, as you can tell, there is no love lost between these two men, Ahab and Elijah. Ahab cannot stand Elijah because he got in his way of running Israel as he pleased. He messed up his plans. And Elijah, by contrast, has no respect for Ahab because he refuses to do what a good Israelite king is supposed to do, to direct the people to serve the Lord. What you have here is a good old-fashioned standoff. Two intractable sides that refuse to be moved. Both are convinced they're right. The time for words is done. We're way beyond that. The only thing that is left is a showdown, a trial by ordeal. And so Elijah demands that Ahab send the people to Mount Carmel to see who is the real God. Surprisingly, Ahab listens. Let's just stop and think about this for a minute. Why would Ahab agree to a showdown with Elijah? Isn't that in some way legitimizing his claims, who he is? Well, think about it. How much choice did Ahab really have? The, the country was, and the surrounding areas have been brought to its knees by this crippling drought. Ahab had to do something to fix this. But Elijah also offered him a very generous um, situation, a very generous location. Paul, can you cue the map? So where the geography is important. And so here you see... Here you see, up in the top area, let's go up here, this is where Tyre and Sidon is. You, you can go to the second map now, Paul, that has the circles. Tyre and Sidon, this is the area where Jezebel came from. This is Phoenicia, this is the place of Baal. And then here's Mount Carmel, right here. And then down below is kind of the center of Israel. This is where Samaria and Shechem and Shiloh, this is where the kings of the north had put their temple and and their capital. And so, Carmel is really right in the middle 
between Phoenicia and northern Israel. But it was really thought to be Baal's homeland, Baal's turf. In fact, the Assyrians called Mount Carmel the mountain of Baal. All right, that's good, Paul. So Elijah is giving Ahab home field advantage. He's also outnumbered 850 to 1. Now, it turns out Ahab will only bring 450 of the prophets of Baal, but still, you're never going to get better odds. And so Ahab agrees, and he sends for the people and the prophets. And you can imagine the increasing tension and excitement as the people slowly trickle in from from the south, and they, they find their way up to Mount Carmel. Now, King Ahab's there too, but he's not mentioned for the rest of this exchange. Elijah is no longer focusing on Ahab. That ship has sailed. Now he is aiming at the people who are coming. And so when all the people arrive, he addresses them. In verse 21, Elijah came near to all the people and said, How long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. And the people did not answer him a word. Elijah says, how long will you waver, go back and forth between two opinions? The ESV translates it literally. It's the word limp. It, it limp is similar to the word in the Hebrew to be disabled or, or lame, hopping along, hobbling back and forth between two opinions, unable or unwilling to commit to either. Elijah's challenge to Israel is the same as Jesus to you today. You cannot be a spectator and follow God. You can't merely be a fan. You must commit your life fully. You must take up the cross and follow Jesus. And Elijah says, no more fence sitting. Choose Baal or choose God. And the people are silent. After all, Elijah is in no place to make demands. They're on Baal's mountain, and Elijah is outnumbered 450 to 1. This is not good betting odds. And so Elijah lays out the terms of the challenge in verse 22. Then Elijah said to the people, I, even I only, am left the prophet of the Lord, but Baal's prophets are 450 men. Let two bulls be given to us, and let them choose one bull for themselves and cut it in pieces and lay it on the wood, but put no fire to it. And I will prepare the other bull and lay it on the wood and put no fire to it. And you call upon the name of your God, and I will call upon the name of the Lord. And the God who answers by fire, he is God. And the people answered, it was well spoken. Once again, it looks like Elijah is, is lining himself up to take one on the chin. He's, he's putting himself at a disadvantage because fire was right up Baal's alley. As one commentator put it, Baal was the god of the storm. He should easily have been able to send a, a flash of lightning to ignite a sacrifice presented by his devotees. And so the people said, this is fair. Yeah, we agree. And with that, Elijah defers to Baal's prophets. Then Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, Choose for yourselves one bull and prepare it first, for you are many, and call upon the name of your God, but put no fire to it. 
And they took the bull that was given them and they prepared it and called upon the name of Baal from morning until noon, saying, Oh, Baal, answer us. The prophets, they take the the field, so to speak. um, Elijah defers and, and they can't wait. They know their cause is right. They know they're going to win. And you can picture this impressive sight of 450 excited, perhaps even fanatical men leaping, dancing, shouting around the altar with a bull ready for offering. And they cry out, Baal, answer us. And they do this for three hours. And what happens? Scripture says, but there was no voice and no one answered. And they limped around the altar that they had made. Time continues to pass and Elijah decides to have a little helpful encouragement. Verse 27. And at noon, Elijah mocked them, saying, Cry aloud, for he is a god. Either he is musing or he is relieving himself or he is on a journey. Or perhaps he is asleep and must be awakened. Now, Baal worshippers and their view of God believe that their God was really more like a a superhuman or superman than an all-powerful, infallible God that we confessed in in Westminster Confession, the larger confession chapter number seven. Uh, Maybe, you know, he's limited. And so, you know, there's stories actually about Baal going out hunting. And so, you know, you can imagine Elijah leaning on the altar as they're dancing. Anything? Are you done yet? No? Well, at least I brought some dates. That's really impressive, you know. Um, Anything from Baal? You know, um, maybe Baal's busy. I don't know. Maybe he's on a business trip. Maybe he's in the outhouse. Maybe he's asleep. With that, in verse 28, they cried aloud and cut themselves after their custom with swords and lances until the blood gushed out upon them. Sounds barbaric today, but they fought by by drawing blood and increasing their cries and and their agony would incite and arouse Baal and attract his attention. You've got to give it to these guys. They were dedicated. And this continued on for several more hours. Verse 29, As midday passed, they raved on until the time of the offering of the oblation. But there was no voice. No one answered. No one paid attention. And you can imagine nature taking its course and eventually these men losing steam both from their exertion and blood loss until they're all played out. And the prophets retreat, discouraged and dejected. And Elijah takes the field. Verse 30. Then Elijah said to all the people, come near to me. And all the people came near to him and he repaired the altar of the Lord that had been thrown down. Elijah took 12 stones according to the number of the tribes, of the sons of Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord came, saying, Israel shall be your name. And with the stones, he built an altar in the name of the Lord 
And he made a trench about the altar as great as would contain two seahs of seed. And he put the wood in order and cut the bull in pieces and laid it on the wood. And he said, fill four jars with water and pour it on the burnt offering and on the wood. And he said, do it a second time. And they did it a second time. And he said, do it a third time. And they did it a third time. And the water ran around the altar and filled the trench also with water. What a contrast from the prophets of Baal. In a very calm, simple, deliberate way, Elijah rebuilds the altar of the Lord, the twelve stones standing for the twelve tribes of Israel, even though the nations are now fractured, ten in the north, two in the south. Elijah calls on that promise. And then he kills the bull and he arranges the pieces on the altar. And just because this might be a little too easy for God, he has it doused three times with large jugs of water. You can imagine the people scratching their heads. Why, first of all, why are you making it harder and, and, and wincing a little bit too? That's, that's water. It's a drought. This is precious. Little do they know there's about to be a whole lot of it. And then Elijah prays, verse 36. And at the time of the offering of the oblation, which is the evening offering of the temple sacrifice, Elijah the prophet came near and said, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and that I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord, Answer me, that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God, and that you have turned their hearts back. And that's it. There's no yelling, no whooping, no dancing, no cutting, just a prayer in faith. It's a lesson on how to pray, which we'll explore in another sermon. But God hears and answers. Verse 38 when the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, The Lord, He is God. The Lord, He is God. And what else can these people, sitting, wavering, limping on the fence, do but fall down and confess that what they've seen is the true God in action. And with that, Elijah orders the death of the false prophets. Look at verse 40. And Elijah said to them, Seize the prophets of Baal, let not one of them escape. And they seized them, and Elijah brought them down to the brook Kishon and slaughtered them there. Thus ends the clash at Carmel. This is an important story. It's it's an exciting part of biblical history. But why is it here? The Lord lets you be witness to this confrontation because, like Israel, he wants to draw your hearts to him. I want us to look at three truths that you see here in this passage. First of all, your idols will fail you. Truth number one, your idols will fail you. Think about why did Elijah bend over backwards, go out of his way to make it easier for his opponent and harder 
for himself. Why did he give them home field advantage? Why did he let them have such a great numerical advantage? Why did he let them go first? To completely discredit Baal in the eyes of Israel. To show beyond a reasonable doubt, beyond any doubt, that Baal is no God. And as you see, as, as they are trying with all their might to evoke and the, the attention of Baal and to get him to hear an answer, Elijah is perfectly fine with satire and mocking humor and poking fun at their misery. In fact, he even uses potty humor. Yes, kids, there is potty humor in the Bible. In the Barshinger house, our rules are that you only talk about potty stuff in the bathroom. And we're already teaching... Sammy, that's how it works as he's potty training. And and normally, that's a good guideline. But Elijah says, worshiping a dead God and expecting life from him is so absurd that I'm going to use potty humor to make a point. And clearly that's okay, because it's Elijah. It's really tragic, isn't it? Uh, Seeing these prophets jump around, fanatically cutting themselves, mutilating themselves with, with no results. But you know, we do the same today. Might look different. You expect, at least for little bits in your life, that that people, that pleasures, that pastimes will fill the void in your heart and make you truly alive. And and claims are getting more and more bold as as we can create more spectacular surroundings. I I was watching, uh, there was an ad on YouTube that I saw. It was about, I believe, uh, a game of Doom which is re-engineered from when I was a young man growing up. But one of the reviews of this game said, it makes you feel godly. Hmm. It makes you feel godly. The problem of idolatry is ultimately a problem of love. You love something other than God and trust it to fulfill you and satisfy you. And it can't bear the weight. It will fail you. It may be a complete burn or... It may be something more what happens to Israel. They are sidelined by Baal. They're no longer in the fight serving God. They are apathetically just off watching. They're no longer in the fight. They're not willing to give their all for the God who has rescued them and redeemed them. Several hundred years earlier, Israel had, surprise, surprise, had also run away into idolatry at Mount Sinai. The people are given gold to Aaron to build a golden calf. And Moses comes down from the mountain. And like Elijah, he calls out, he says, who is on the Lord's side? It's where we get the, the song that we sang in the beginning. Who is on the Lord's side? Follow me. And the men of his tribe from Levi, they did. They were willing to step into the fray and did battle for the Lord. But here, Elijah makes that same call. Choose this day. There's crickets. Absolute silence. The people of God are by their idols so trapped and ensnared that they are no longer willing or able to do any meaningful work for the Lord. They are limping on the sidelines. And that can be the same for us today. You can be trapped by your idols so that you limp on the sidelines. And the American church has sold this narrative that that is okay. You know, if you come on Sunday, if you give, put some money in the offering, you're good. You know, you can do whatever you want for the rest of your week. 
This view is really saying that God is an idol, just like any other. And as long as you give him an offering to placate him, you have a little bit of your time and money on Sunday, God will bless off the rest of your week. Right there. That misses the whole point of us following Jesus as his disciple. He doesn't want a sliver of your life. He wants all of you. He wants you to be so consumed with his glory and with the passion to follow him. Sunday is, is not just the part where you buy him off. It's the high point of the week where we come together and celebrate his resurrection and then we're sent off in his strength to serve him for the rest of the week, to continue in discipleship and cross-bearing. So let me ask you today, Are there any idols that have brought you to the sideline? That are hampering your effectiveness? Men, I want to talk to you specifically for a little bit. Now, of course, ladies and kids, this this all applies to you. But I I think Satan in our current society seems to have gained a, a foothold with us men that we have come to believe the lies that we can be just grown boys as long as we fulfill the minimum requirements for life. Guys, are your pastimes getting in the way of you following Jesus? Let's get personal, right? Hunting, your fishing, your guns, your boats, your gaming, I'll put myself in there, your sports team, your bike or your workout plan. Are they getting in the way of following Jesus? Now, I know the objections. I I, I hear them myself. They come from my heart. Don't touch my hobbies. I work hard. I come home. If I'm married, I help out there. Of course, there's a place for genuine recreation. For me, in a proper place, I love to get out on my bike. The army makes me run, but my true love is, is biking. And I just love to get out for an hour or two, easy ride in the South Jersey rolling countryside just to hear nothing but the, the sing of the tires as they hum on the road and I just, I can, mind can reflect, my body rests. It's, it's truly restful for me. But I know in my own heart how my hobbies go from helpful, restful ways to enjoy God's world and to rest from the fight to come back into it stronger to becoming my world where I am the king. There's a, there's a neat little book called Letters to, I believe it's Phil, Letters to Phil. It's many years ago, uh, an author and Christian counselor, Charlie Shedd, wrote as a father to his son who's about to get married, his son Phil, how to love his wife. And so the letters became a book, Letters to Phil. And near the end, he tells this cautionary tale. Every year, he said he'd go out hunting with a friend. I believe it was ducks and they would take their shotguns out and they'd go hunting and they'd enjoy it. And then Charlie would go back to his friend's house and they would start to you know, clean up and put their gear away. And his friend would always scold him about the poor condition of his gun. The stock was not polished. The weapon was not cleaned well. And his friend's eye, it was barely functional. And he'd give Charlie a stern lecture about taking better care of his shotgun. And then he'd point to his large and meticulously well-maintained rack of firearms, each beautifully maintained and polished, gleaming and glistening. And Charlie wrote to his son, I always, always returned home with good intentions, resolved to do better. And then I'd get home and I'd see my wife and we'd sit down and chat and I'd forget about my gun and my resolve would slip away. 
Now, guys, the point of this story is not that when you come home after hunting, you should forget about your gun and talk to your wife. Uh, do both. Uh, talk to your wife, but clean your gun. And, and ladies, this guy was, uh, most of us are not wired that way. We need to clean our weapons. Let's just say that. But here's the punchline of the story. Charlie, when he's driving home and still gripped by that determination to grip it, to clean his weapon, was also gripped by a twinge of sadness. You see, because as a counselor, he had tried to help his friend save his marriage. But it failed. He was now divorced. And a big part of the problem was that he loved his gun collection more than he loved his wife. And this is the advice that Charlie gave to his son, Phil. He said, oh, if he had just put as much love and tenderness into caring for his wife as he did the stocks and the barrels and the internal components of his gun uh, gun collection, he'd be married today. Guys, that story is, is not just a good wa- lesson about how to prioritize your wife when it comes to your marriage and your hobbies. It also applies to your relationship to your Lord Jesus, which is even more important, more ultimate. You can be more excited and skilled in firearms and fishing than following Jesus. You can religiously follow your workout routine, but neglect to grow in the disciplines of the Christian life. You can know the benefits of a 12 personnel formation or how to diagnose the cover two scheme. That's football talk. But you don't lead your family in the tactics of following the Christian life. Guys, if that's you, you're limping. You're on the sidelines. Now, of course, this applies to everyone. No matter what derails you, no matter what catches your eye, your idols will fail you. And they will sideline you. How can I tell? How can I tell if something is an idol? Well, the down and dirty test, the quick test is, do I love my Lord Jesus more or less because of this thing in my life? And I plead for you today, see your idols as what they are. At at worst, they kill you immediately. They suck out the life of you. They they make you an animal like these prophets leaping around. They're beast-like at the best, and it's still very bad. These obstacles cause you to limp around and waver and sit on the sidelines instead of following your king into battle like he's called you to do. Are there idols in your life today that you need to lay at the feet of Jesus? Repent now. Because as you see here, your idols will fail you. That leads to the next truth. Sacrifice defeats idolatry. I want you to think about the way God answered the people. How did he respond to Elijah's prayer? With flaming fire. Now, on one hand, that's a miraculous, impressive display of power. And the people fall on their faces and cry out, The Lord, He is God. The Lord, He is God. But this answering by fire is more significant than just being an intention getter. God, through Elijah, accepted a sacrifice on behalf of His idol-loving people. There are three other times in the Old Testament where God accepts the sacrifice by fire. Um, The first was the consecration of the tabernacle 
in Leviticus. And then number two and three were when King David offered a sacrifice for his sin for numbering the troops on, on a hill that he had bought. And then the third time is where his son Solomon dedicated the temple on that same hill. And the Lord answers his sacrifice by fire. And each time when God answers by fire, it's more than just a neat pyrotechnic show. The whole question of the Bible since Genesis 3 is, how do we sinful, idol-chasing people live with a holy God? And the answer is, through sacrifice. By another giving their life in our place. And Elijah was clearly offering up a sacrifice to God's people. You get a hint of that when it remarks that it was the time of the evening oblation. That would have been the time of the evening sacrifice in the temple. That sacrifice which signified God's acceptance of his people. That I love you and I can now live with you. And so this fire was a sign of God's acceptance and grace. You and I cannot throw off the shackles of idolatry on our own. We need a sacrifice to break its power. The beauty of the gospel is that Jesus came down, humble and as a servant, and as we read in Philippians 2 this morning, gave his life for us. There is another idol out there today that counters this idea, the idol of self-sufficiency, or maybe we should just say the idol of, I'm not that bad. Or, I'm okay. That, you know, we're really good enough and we don't need Jesus to die for us. I'm going to quote a few tweets from a singer, a songwriter named Audrey Assad. I believe she um, is, would would, uh, name herself as a a Catholic adherent. Uh, I I do so with some hesitation because I I don't know the context. I haven't listened to her songs. Um, I don't know anything about her and, and Twitter can be easily twisted. But my sister pointed out to me her comments, and as they stand, they illustrate this idol of I'm okay. She first retweets someone else saying this, I used to worship a scapegoat, their sacrifice is a language, I used to worship a scapegoat, I hated myself, and I thought God hated me, and I couldn't bear it. When I began to stop hating myself, I stopped dying and started living then Jesus' life mattered as much as his death did. And she tweets in response, When I stopped needing Jesus to save me from God's wrath, the incarnation took on new and pulsating and breathtaking significance. If Christ didn't become man to save me from God's anger, I had infinitely more mining and exploration to do in Christ's actual life and mission. Now, there's a lot going on there. Um, I would love to sit down with Audrey and have a conversation about just what she meant and why she thinks atonement is no longer necessary. Um, I'm sad because my my fear is that she and this other person who tweeted have experienced some very self-righteous Christians who have put a very sour taste in her mouth when it comes to what it means that we are totally depraved. But that aside... And those would be important conversations to have. If I understand her correctly, uh, because maybe she's reacting to a false understanding of human nature, she rejects the one thing that is the very central storyline 
of the Bible and the beautiful answer to the burning question of all Scripture. How can we live with a good and holy God when we are not? And it's by His own sacrifice. And if you understand this rightly, it shouldn't lead to self-loathing, but to a new life. Elijah's offering is a burnt offering. And the symbolism of a burnt offering um, is that it is offered up and it is completely consumed. And as the one who sacrifices in the Old Testament a burnt offering, you are showing that you are completely devoted to God. Even you're offering your own self up figuratively to be consumed with passion for God. That's not self-loathing. That's, that's joyful identity. It's being able to worship God in, in all of His greatness. We need that sacrifice. Because I don't know about you, as beautiful as the picture of the burnt offering and being consumed and wrapped up in God, that's not me all the time. I am not totally consumed for God. Yes, there are brief glimpses when by His grace I, I, I see a little peak of God's glory and I love that. But oh, there are times when I find my idol still attractive. I'm aware that I'm a sinner. There are times in my stubbornness I know that my idols are respectable, yes, but I'm living for me. And I do it anyway. And then I'm convicted. And I repent and go back to the Father. And I claim the blood of Jesus and receive that forgiveness. And the question becomes, if Jesus didn't answer for my idols, who will make it right? Me? No, I'd be crushed. Sacrifice defeats idolatry. There's no hope without it. And that leads to the last truth. You cannot be neutral when it comes to worshiping God. You cannot be neutral. We come to that last verse where Elijah orders the death of 450 prophets. And that's hard to hear today. That Elijah would take his adversaries and execute them. I mean, I know that Jezebel killed many of the Lord's prophets, but, but can't we turn the other cheek? Isn't that what Jesus would do? There's so a lot that could be said here. Let's just be clear. Jesus is clear in his teaching that there is no place for us to use physical violence to spread the Christian faith. That runs against his teachings and that runs against how the early Christians lived as well. And then you say, well, isn't the Old Testament then inconsistent with the New Testament? Not at all. Because you see, God is judge. And In the Old Testament, Israel was a nation under God, quite literally. And he gave clear laws that the punishment for idolatry was death. And that is what Elijah did. He carried out God's laws. Now, we don't live in a nation ruled directly by God today. But this mass execution is a picture of something that is still to come. Paul, you have that last slide. The geography around Carmel where Elijah executed the false prophets, has been the scenes of many battles. And what you can see here are these arrows. And these arrows point to the lowlands that all converge to a point right around Mount Carmel. This ridge directs all kinds of armies, has directed all kinds of armies throughout history to clash 
right in the valley of Jezreel, right near this town of Medigo. That's great, Paul. Uh, that's, that's good. I'm going to read something from uh, a quote from a Bible scholar, because this is significant. He says, Mount Carmel overlooked the plain of Jezreel, near the ancient city of Medigo, in the plain below. The plain of Jezreel is perhaps the most contested piece of real estate in the history of the world. The major ancient highway linking three continents cut through a pass into the plain near Mount Carmel. Deborah, Joshua, David, Solomon, Josiah, the Philistines, the pharaohs of Egypt, the kings of Assyria, Babylon and Persia, Alexander the Great, the Roman legions, the armies of Islam, the Crusaders, Napoleon, the Turks, the British, and the Israelis have all fought or otherwise sought to control the strategic highway through the plain of Jezreel. Did you know we get a word from Carmel and the city of Medigo? It is the mountain of Medigo, which in Hebrew is Har Medigo, which is translated into Armageddon which is the final clash where all the armies that are opposed to God assemble and they are defeated by Jesus and he destroys them forever and throws them into eternal punishment. What this verse tells us, the execution of these prophets, is that you cannot stand on the sidelines. You know, there are plenty of Americans today who would listen to, to what I am saying and read this passage up to this point and say, yeah, I guess I'm living in sin. I, I guess I'm running after idols by your definition, but I'm okay with that. Quite honestly, my life feels fulfilled and happy. Well, I'll tell you what. Um, First Kings uses that word limp for both the people who are wavering in their indecision and the prophets who are limping around the altar. And what God is saying there is it doesn't matter if you are actively opposing me or simply merrily doing your own thing. You are guilty of idolatry. And here's the final truth. You can't sit on the sidelines. You must choose between Jesus and your idols. Either Jesus took the flames of judgment for you or he will consume you as your judge. Let us all today look at our idols and view them as the deadly snares that they are. And then look to the God-man who came down for us and took away the flames of judgment. Today, let us bow our knee and confess the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. Let us pray. Father, when we read your word, that you will not give your glory to another, that idols are dead and lifeless, that you answer sacrifice by fire, and that you have made a way for us to be loved and accepted by you, ultimately through the flames of judgment at the cross. What can we do but lay our lives down and worship you and live for you? Father, would you today 
Spirit, take the sword of the Spirit and root out the idols which sideline us, which hamper us, which hinder us, that you would make us more willing and obedient servants who could run and enjoy our service of our King Jesus. We pray this in his name. Amen.